Good morning, church families. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. I am so excited to be here. Um, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, I'm not going to do the Kermit the Frog dance if you happen to see that on there, but uh, I am very excited to be here and to share God's word with you this morning. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, as a, a body at Grace Covenant, we have been going through the book of Ephesians as our first uh, book to exposit as a body together. Um, and we have moved through and we're to the final section of chapter one. So I get the privilege of closing out chapter one and, and looking at the uh, amazing head of the church. The title of my message this morning is the head of the church uh, and the beautiful Christ that we have the privilege of serving um, and the, the amazing power and authority that he's been given. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. Um, I'll go into more details, but first I want to read the passage together. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of the one who gave us this word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having already, excuse me, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength while he worked in Christ, or which he worked in Christ. By raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, for this is the word of the Lord. We come before you uh, seeking your grace that you would expand and expound this word to us. May the Spirit help us to see and understand the power of who you are. Lord, I pray for myself that you would remove any distractions, any nerves, uh, anything else would completely remove me from the equation. And I pray that your people will hear your word uh, through your Spirit. In your holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So the last several weeks, as I mentioned, Grace Covenant has been going through this first chapter of Ephesians together, um, and Lord willing, we'll complete the entire book sometime in the fall, um, I think, from, from the number of sermons that it will be. But it has been absolutely amazing as a body to set our foundation as a church about to launch officially uh, on, on April 9th. We are so amazed to see the work of God in salvation and the work of Christ for his people. And that's been the foundation that the goal of, of choosing Ephesians to go through is so that our body, our very young body, would know that the foundation of everything for a church is Christ. That the foundation of everything that we are as a body is built on him and nothing more. And so that we don't have the distractions, the pragmatism that can so easily creep in, so that we can be so fixated on Christ that we see nothing else. And so that we love one another as Christ would have us to, so that we follow his commands as he would have us to, so that we 
give the light of the gospel as he would have us to. And so as we go through this, uh, this first few verses of Ephesians 1, we've, we've went all the way 1 through 14, and in this, Paul talks about our salvation, and he brings up certain points. In 1.5, he brings up adoption. In verse 7 and 14, he brings up redemption. Uh, verse 11, he brings up our inheritance. Uh, he describes the, the choice of God in salvation. And now he's going to culminate the first portion, uh, excuse me, culminate this chapter with explaining the culmination that we have in the seal and pledge of the Holy Spirit, the, the assurance that we have of our salvation in him. And he's going to switch gears into our passages today and say, for this reason, or because of all that, because of everything that I've said up to this point, because of who God is, what Christ has done, he is now going to lay out the foundational principles of what a body of Christ is, the foundational principles of who the head of the church is, because the entire rest of the book of Ephesians rests on the body of Christ with him as the head. And so he's going to set that up for us today to be able to see, because it's, it's absolutely uh, vital that a church body understands its identity solely in Christ, solely in Christ. A church body has to understand that it is a, a believer, excuse me, has to understand that they are a member of the body of Christ. And that is the identity, not in programs, not in buildings, not in bank accounts, not in denominations. The local body, the body of believers, the body of Christ must see their identity in him because it impacts everything that we do on a day in and day out basis and a week in and week out basis. So it's vitally important that we understand that. And so today we're going to look at together Paul expressing this foundation of building the body of Christ and what Christ does for his church. So first point this morning is Christ's change in the believer. It's going to be in verses 15 and 16. So Christ's change in the believer. Verse 15 and 16 reads, For this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul is reiterating here that he has heard that Ephesians, the Ephesian church, uh, the ones who would read this letter, are faithful to Christ, just like he does in verse one. He opens up the entire book of Ephesians by saying to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he points out, and thanks God for their faith in Christ. And he's speaking about them as a congregation. This is not an individual. He is saying that as a body of Christ, they have faith in the Lord Jesus. And he, he puts this directly after, remember he starts verse 15 with, for this reason. The reason he brings this up is because of the, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the pledge of our inheritance that God has given us. So he's saying, because of the Holy Spirit's work in you, I thank God for your faithfulness. I thank God that you are faithful to him, faithful to Christ. But notice that the second thing that he draws their attention to, that the thing that he thanks God for is their love for all the saints. The two marks of a healthy body that Paul begins this passage with is faith in Christ and a love for all the saints. 
I know there's a lot of talk about nine marks of healthy churches and those kinds of things, and those are all good things to look at, but I want us to look at what Paul says are the two marks of a healthy body that he thanks God for. Their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. That is foundational for a body, is it not? That is foundational for us as believers to understand when we come together as a body of Christ, there are two things that must be evident in our lives as a body. Faith in Christ and a love for the saints, a love for one another. Richard Sibbs says it this way, no man can love a saint as a saint, but a saint. It's not, it's not a, a, a love that we conjure up on our own. This isn't something that we can manifest by working harder and ignoring things and sweeping problems under the, under the rug. This is a supernatural love. This is a supernatural unity that we cannot have outside of Christ. So the faith in Christ comes and the love of the saints pours out. That is foundational to a body. And he gives thanks to God for them without ceasing. This, of course, doesn't mean that he's never doing anything else, but this is a way of emphasizing that he is constantly praying for them, making sure that he's giving thanks for God's work in them. While making mention of you in my prayers, the Apostle Paul, the messenger of God, the one who has authority from him to go and teach the gospel is praying for those whom he has left behind. How often are we praying for our brothers and sisters in our bodies? We are to have the, the faith in Christ, and that is a mark of a healthy church. And, and we are to have the love for one another, but Paul sets a very good precedent here to pray without ceasing, to pray often for the body. Pray for your body. This is the change that Christ makes in the believer. He changes them because before you have been impacted by Christ and you have been saved by his grace, you don't have faith in him. That is a gift from him. Before you are impacted by Christ, you don't have the love of Christ. You can't. You cannot have the love for the saints. This is the change that Christ makes in us that Paul is thanking God for being able to see in this church. And that's what we have to apply from the first portion of this text. We have to understand that it is not anything outward that we are to be praised for. It is for the inward change in faith of Christ and the love for the saints that we cannot conjure on our own. We need to be thankful for that, thanking and praying for one another and looking to Christ as the foundation for what we are as a church, because it's his change in us that brings us together, that unites us regardless of skin color, regardless of social status, regardless of nationality, regardless of any of those things, Christ unites us in him. That's the change that he makes. And Paul starts this passage out very clearly that he's thankful for those marks of Christ on this body of believers. So let us fix our eyes on Christ that we might see him. Secondly, and we'll spend a little bit more time here, continued work of the Spirit. The, the, the next portion of the passage is going to continue and show us the continued work of the Spirit in our lives. So Paul is praying now and he's, he's lifting up 
prayers for the saints of Ephesus and those who would read this letter. So verses 17 through 20, he, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ. The continued work of the Spirit is what Paul prays for after thanking God for this body. He's going to now explain in this prayer what he wants to see, what he prays that God would do in the life of this church. And notice what he begins with, that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the full knowledge of him. Now, this is not the idea of giving this church the spirit in the idea of salvation or justification. In fact, at the beginning of verse 18, it says, the eyes of your heart having already been or having been enlightened. What he's praying for this church is that the spirit would come in and continue to work in the lives of these believers. Salvation is not a one-time stamp by the spirit and he leaves you alone and hopes for the best. Paul is praying that the spirit would continue to work in the lives of these believers in the life of this church. We are dependent, brothers and sisters, on the spirit within us. We are wholly dependent on his revelation as we move forward in our lives. Were not for the spirit continued to reveal things to us, we would have no idea about the beauty of God in his holiness and his justice. We would have no idea about the miracles that we see. The Spirit opens the word for us that we might understand it. Were not for the Spirit's continued work, we would not be here preaching the word of God or singing to one another with hymns and spiritual songs. We are 100% dependent on the Spirit of Christ to continue the work in us. And Paul knows this. He knows that this body in Ephesus, just as we do today, must have the Spirit's continued work to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Amen. And back in verse 8, Paul says that the entire redemptive plan is from God's wisdom and insight, God's understanding. And he says, all that we see, all that I'm describing to you about Christ's work and being in him is from God's wisdom. And then he goes and he boldly asks God through the work of the Spirit to reveal the wisdom to fix our, our human understanding, to make us see God as he is. Think about that for just a minute. We have the Spirit in us to continue to change our desires, to open our eyes, to remove the scale and slime of sin. I thought of the, the pit of despond in the Pilgrim's Progress. And he's just covered in stuff when he pulls himself out of there, uh, when he gets pulled out of there. Think of the Spirit as, as continuing to clean us off more and more, to change our desires. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean we ever arrive to the point this side of glorification that we have the knowledge that we will in heaven, but it does mean that we continually depend on the Spirit to change us. It's not just about justification, it's about renewal and sanctification. The Spirit's continued work. 
in us. I think a really good way of, of understanding this, for a lot of years, researchers thought that blue whales were completely mute. If you knew that or not, but blue whales, very, very large creatures, largest creatures. And for years, they thought they couldn't communicate at all. Until one day, there was technology advanced enough that it picked up a bass register. Do you know the blue whale's bass register is so low that humans cannot hear it? And come to find out, based because of this technology that they have to better understand and hear the blue whale, they found out that they could communicate hundreds, if not thousands of miles because of this base register. The depths of God in Christ are so fast without the spirits working within us, we could never begin to comprehend him. So just as the scientists had to have the right technology to be able to understand something completely beyond their comprehension to hear, we have to have the Spirit continuing to work in us to, to drive us to Christ, to bring our eyes up to Him, to enlighten our minds with the wisdom and revelation. We only have true wisdom and understanding when we view all things from God's perspective. That's the only time we have true wisdom and understanding. R.C. Sproul says it this way, authentic wisdom begins when we understand that God is to be the object of our devotion, our adoration, and our reverence. And that does not, hear me when I say this, that does not happen without the Spirit's work within us. And I think I've driven that point home pretty hard, but I, I want to make sure that we are 100% dependent on the Spirit of God. Because when we look to anything else, we will fail. When we look to anything else, a body falls apart. When we look to anything else, we compromise the truth of the scriptures to make sure that we have our understanding and have our relevance. It is Christ alone. And Paul tells us why in verse 17 through the end, and the full knowledge of him, and then he goes on in verse 18 to say that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ? So God opens the eyes of our heart. Verse 18, I read it already, but I'll read it again. The eyes of your heart having been enlightened. So God opens the eyes of our heart. He turns our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the first thing that we see after our eyes have been enlightened, is the glory of God in the face of Christ. We know in verse 18, you will know what is the hope of his calling. The first thing that changes after our eyes have been enlightened is that we have a hope in Christ. That we have a hope of his calling. We have confidence in what God does and confidence in the covenant that he has made with his people. We have confidence in the seal of the spirit and the pledge of God in verses 13 and 14. We have hope in the calling of Christ. And hope is central to the human makeup. 
The hope of rescue can keep a prisoner of war motivated to live for years under extreme conditions. The hope of a victory can keep a sports team in a game when they're down by 10 points. There have been dictators and evil men throughout history that controlled entire populaces by controlling the hope, either building it up or crushing it down. Hope is paramount to the human condition. Where, where is your hope? Is your hope in Christ that cannot fail? Is your hope in the Redeemer? Or is your hope in what you can bring to the table? Because I promise you don't want to put your hope in what you can bring to the table. Where is your hope? The hope of the calling. The next thing that Paul says that the Spirit will do for us is show us what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints so that we might know the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance and the saints. Think about that loaded phrase. Back in verses 11 and 12 of this same chapter, Paul has explained that the elect are given to Christ as an inheritance in order to bring him glory. Read, read the, the words with me there again. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints? Verse 11 is translated that it is the inheritance of Christ. God gives his people that he is elected unto salvation to the beloved, the son, his son, as an inheritance that he might redeem them to himself and those people then spend an eternity glorifying the one who sacrificed himself. God gave his people to Christ as an inheritance then you may go, why is that so impactful? God doesn't fail in his gifts. God is righteous and perfect and holy. So if he has given these people to Christ to redeem, you can take it to the bank that he is going to redeem them. Not only do we have confidence in the fact that God doesn't fail in his inheritance that he's given to his own son, but we then have the privilege of glorifying the one who sacrificed himself. That is our sole lot in life. We are privileged on this, on this planet to know why we are here. Do you ever think about that? We as believers know what our goal in life is, to glorify God. There are people who spend their entire lives trying to find out what they're supposed to do and why they're here, what their calling is. The hope of our calling is that we are the inheritance given to Christ by the Father and we are to glorify him for eternity. How beautiful is that? How amazing is it that we have that privilege that we know cannot fail because God gave us to his beloved son? That is beautiful. And he not only leaves us in the state of simply seeing his face, Ezekiel 36, turn there with me. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I mentioned earlier the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I'm sure this is a favorite passage of many of us, but sometimes we stop at verse 26. So I wanna add in verse 27. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 reads, 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Not only do we have the hope of the calling, not only are we able to see what are the riches of the glories have been glory of his inheritance in the saints, but he does not leave us there. And that's what Paul is echoing here in Ephesians, praying for the spirit, praying that God would fulfill the promises that he makes, that his spirit would come and write the statutes upon our hearts. The Christian life is not a high five at justification and a pat on the backside as you go on with life and say, I hope you figure it out. God maintains his people with the spirit writing the statutes and laws of God upon our hearts that we would desire to glorify him instead of glorify ourselves as we were in the old man. In the last section here in verse 19, Paul is going to use four powerful words here to make a beautiful point. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ? Surpassing greatness, might of his strength. The greatest miracle, the greatest display of God's greatness is not that he spoke everything that exists into existence. Although that's amazing. The greatest power of God is not that he raised Lazarus from the dead while he was here. That's not the greatest display of God's power, although it is amazing. The parting of the Red Sea is not the greatest display of God's power. The flooding of the entire earth is not even the greatest display of God's power. The greatest surpassing greatness of his power, the example of the might of his strength is the redemptive plan of those whom he's chosen to save. That is the greatest display of the power of God. And when you think about God choosing to save those whom he will before the very foundations of the earth were put in place, his sovereign providence to choose people to bring about that redemptive plan over thousands of years, to then send his son who would be brutally murdered and then pour out the wrath for those people that he's chosen to save upon that son, to then take that active and passive obedience of that son, the one who fulfilled the law when we could not, the one who takes his righteousness and gives it to us to reconcile us to himself when we were enemies at birth of this God, that is a display of strength. That is a display of power. There is nothing in existence or in history that compares with God's display of his strength and his redemption of his people. And that's what we have the privilege of seeing and understanding as the Spirit continues to work out wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of Him, as we grow in our knowledge of Him. And He did all this, all this, the beginning of verse 20, which He worked in 
Christ, which he worked in Christ. Christ is the central figure, the best revelation, the point of the gospel is seen in Christ. He worked all of this in Christ. Now, as we think about how that impacts our daily lives, because that's a lot of information, it's, it's beautiful to think about, but how does that impact our daily lives? This prayer that Paul is praying is for them to be impacted, and we'll see later on, so that Christ would be the head of the body who then shows that glory, shows that power, shows that strength to the entire world. The entire rest of the book of Ephesians is foundational to understand how a body is to act, react, and interact with the world around them to show that power that we just talked about, to show the inheritance that we have the privilege of being a part of the inheritance that God gave to the son to show what is our hope of our calling. This Paul is setting up a beautiful argument for the rest of the book where he tells the church because of what Christ has done, this is how you live. This is how you interact with the world. And we're gonna be able to catch a glimpse here as Paul takes these four amazing words in verse 19. He's gonna use that same argumentation, that same powerful over-explanation to tell us even more about who Christ is as the head of the church. So let's move to that point where we can see that. My next point is, I, I don't have four. I, will, I mean, I have four, I don't have three. I was a bad Baptist today. Four points. So point three, the power and authority of Christ, verses 20, the second part of verses 20 and 21. It reads, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the head of the church. This is who we serve. The power and authority of Christ is so evidenced here that it cannot be questioned. He begins in verse 20 by saying that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God raised his son that he has given that he poured out his wrath upon, raised him up and put him at his right hand. This is symbolic language, meaning the, the, the seat of power, the position of all power, all authority. Christ is king. And that's what Paul's trying to get across because he's saying everything has worked in Christ. God has done all these things. He's leading up from verse one till now and he's saying all these things are in Christ. And Christ has the authority. He is far above all rule, far above all authority, far above all power, and far above all dominion. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 28, 18, Christ tells his disciples this. 
He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then if you flip over to Acts 1.9, you'll be able to see the ascension of Christ. This record of Christ being gifted and given back the power and authority that he deserves, the glory that he deserves, the position of complete authority with God in the heavenly places is absolutely vital for us to understand because we cannot depend on ourselves. The one who saved us, the one who is our head, the one who redeemed us has all authority and all power. We serve the greatest king in the universe. If that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know how to make you confident in your faith. Christ is everything. Christ has all authority. Christ has all power. And we are united in him. And we're going to see that in just a moment at the end of this chapter. But we are united in him. He is seated above everything. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God also highly exalted him. That's Philippians 2.9. God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And he did, and we know in Revelation that he will be lifted on high and all will praise him. But if you look in verse 21, I want to make a point here, especially it was God's providence is beautiful. Ryan talked about this morning in Sunday school about um, angels and demons and, and that, that Christ has authority above all of them and that we don't have to fear him, although we should respect the activity. But in verse 21, read where it says, and every name that is named, every name that is named. The wording here uh, is actually very specific and applicable to the Ephesian church. And I think we need to, to think about this, especially with the rise of paganism and the occult uh, in, our, in our current culture. The idea of above, or excuse me, every name that is named in the pagan culture of Ephesus, where there was a pantheon of different religions, um, just an amazing amount of pagan, occultic, um, spirit connections, trying to make these connections, and what they would do, those who would be in, in paganism and use these kinds of, of ways of operation, they would pick a name that they thought would be powerful and they would chant that name or they would repeat it over and over or they would, they would try to use these names that were powerful. If you remember back in Acts, Paul was approached by someone that said, hey, I'll pay you money to be able to have the authority to use the name of Christ because I can see what you can do with it. I see the miracles that you have. This is the same idea in Ephesus. And Paul is pointing to the Ephesians that not only does Christ have authority over all rule, or excuse me, power, uh, rule and authority and power and dominion, not only does he have those four amazing things, but he is above every name that is named. So any name that you think is powerful, Christ is above that. Every name that you may use to conjure up things that you think will make you popular or make you money or get you connected with a spiritual plane, Christ's name is above that. That's the confidence that we have in Christ, believers. And this is why we as Grace Covenant needed to, to set our foundation firmly on Christ. And Ephesians is a beautiful place to do that. And did you know, I hope that you know, but if you don't, I'm gonna remind you, 
that there is no expiration date on the kingdom of Christ. The end of verse 21, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ condescended to us when he walked on this earth. And after he was raised, God gave him all authority and all power and seated him at his right hand. And that will never change for all eternity. There is no expiration date. Christ will reign forever. And we as co-heirs being united with him have the privilege of being in those heavenly places already. And the idea of an already not yet Right? We're already saved, but we are being saved and will be saved. And so we are already part and co-heirs and joined with Christ in those heavenly places. We are secure in him. Now, why do you think Paul spends, why am I spending so much time to adamantly drive this point home? Why does Paul do it? I think the true reason that Paul does this is because we forget so easily. We get distracted with the minuscule things in life every day. We get pulled back down into the terrible life of a sin-wrecked world. And we get caught up with going to work every day and making sure the kids are dressed, which is important, making sure that we can drive and the car's working. And what about the next promotion? Paul is trying to cloud our vision. Did you know that that those with autism often have a very hard time focusing on the bigger picture of things? They get very caught up because of the way their mind works. They get very caught up in, in the small things right in front of them. They don't communicate well because of that. And there's actually a treatment for that where doctors will take a pair of a large pair of glasses and they will cloud the bottom half of the glasses so that their eyes are forced to come up, so that they communicate better. That's essentially what Paul is trying to do. He is trying to say that Christ is so big and so glorious and has so much power and has all the authority, and he's seated at the right hand of God to pull our stubborn faces and our stiff necks up from the things of this world to focus on Christ that we won't get caught up in this, that we won't get caught up in the mundane things of this world. Another example, have you ever tried, I want you to go home and try this. Have you ever tried to balance a broom with the handle here and the head up here? Try it. Seriously, try it. If you look at the head of the broom, you can balance it for a really long time if you're looking up. But if you look down here where it meets your hand, you'll drop it almost instantly every time. And most of the time will hit you in the head. Try it. Let your kids try it at least. It'll be funny. Record it. (laughs) Do you get the point that I'm trying to make? That Paul is trying to make? Take your eyes off the things of this world and bring them to the glorious face of your king. He has all power and dominion and authority. His name is above every name. Look to him. Look to him. That is what Paul is trying to get across. And after saying all of these beautiful things about Christ and pulling our eyes up from the world, he's going to close this chapter with these words. 
Read with me in verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head. Beginning of verse 22, Paul quotes from a psalm. It says, he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is Psalm 8, 6, if you want to make a note of that. Psalm 8, verse 6. And there's a very specific reason why Paul is referencing that psalm in that context. If you read that psalm in its entirety, you'll actually notice that it's about creation and, and the first Adam and how he is to have dominion and be fruitful and the things that man is supposed to do on the earth. And Paul is saying that the first Adam did not fulfill the creation mandate that Adam had, the second Adam did. He had the dominion. He has the dominion. He has put all things in subjection. The second Adam fulfilled what the first Adam could not, and that is who we look to. We must look to him. And all this majesty and all this grandeur, this beautiful picture, this magnificent view of Christ that Paul has just walked us through, verse 22, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Gave him as head over all things to the church. If that doesn't make you say amen, I don't know what will. We as a church body have the privilege of the king of the universe that was just put on display for us as our head. As inseparable as our physical body is from our physical head, we have the privilege of having Christ as our head. Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18 reads, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The head of everything, the firstborn from the dead, he is our head. He guides us. He is our authority. His word is what we follow. His glorious face is what we look to. The hope of his calling is what we live for. It is Christ. It is Christ. And in verse 23, it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is a bit of a mind twister, but I wanna, I wanna attempt to explain this to you. I'm gonna read a quote that I think will help explain this. Not only is Christ the head of the body, but he is by default the body because we are filled with Christ through his spirit. So not only is Christ the head of us, he is in us bringing our desires under him, bringing our, our thoughts and our actions and, and aligning them. What did Ezekiel tell us? That he would give us the spirit so that we would have his law and his statutes written on our hearts. He is not only the head of the body, but he indwells the body, tying us to him for eternity. 
The fullness, the full spiritual fullness of Christ is in us. He is fullness of all in all. And there's some debate on the the wording of the end of that verse because it is a little different in the original language. You can do your research on that. But the point that Paul is trying to make is that the church with Christ as the head is not only fully attached to the head who is Christ, but fully filled with Christ as the body joining us to him. Does anyone have more confidence in Christ now? Does anyone go praise God because I couldn't do this? You can't white knuckle that. You can't carry out more laws for that. You can't work harder for that. There's no hours of prayer that makes that happen. That is Christ's work in us. And he cannot and will not fail to keep his body together. Augustine says it in this way, we are he and that we are his members and that we are his body and that he is our head in that whole Christ is both head and body. I'm gonna read that again. We are he in that we are his members and that we are his body and that he is our head And that whole Christ is both head and body. Believers, we are linked together inseparably in Christ. The fullness of divine things, Colossians Colossians 2.9 says that Christ is the fullness of all divine things. The fullness of Christ links us together as a body. Is that not foundational for a church? So not only do we have confidence in Christ never letting us go in our salvation as individuals, we know that we are held together by so much more than political ambitions. That we are held together by so much more than social justice. That we are held together so much more than a sports team or whatever else you want to tag on to that. That we are held and locked in together as a body of Christ in him who unifies us around him. Doesn't that change how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ? Doesn't that change how we interact as a body? When you understand that the person sitting next to you who's a believer is a co-heir of your king, doesn't that make you treat them a little bit differently? Doesn't that make you want to serve the co-heir of your king? so much more than you want to serve yourself. What impact does that have on us? It should have the impact that we put ourselves in the back seat and go, that's the co-heir of my king. That's a part of my body. This person that sits next to me week in and week out, I I have the privilege of of being in Christ, being a part of them being a part of their life. I have the privilege of serving the great king who has all power, who resides in heaven, who's my head. I have the privilege of being a part of this body. And that should impact how we live every single day. Every single day. Seeing the head of the church, knowing our identity is absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital because if we don't know who we are in Christ, we will live for ourselves once again, brothers and sisters. 
we will lose sight of what's important. Don't, don't let your eyes get drawn down. Don't drop the broom. Get a t-shirt that says that. Keep your eyes up on Christ. As I prepare to close, Paul has went through great lengths through this first chapter to point us to Christ. He uses the phrase in him over and over and in Christ and he worked in Christ and puts Christ on display for us. And then he comes to the end here and he is in this attitude of prayer and this is an unfortunate chapter break because he continues speaking to them in this, this attitude. But then we arrive at verse 10 and I think verse 10 is the key verse of all of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.10 reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And remember that all of this is because we are the inheritance of God given to Christ for his glory. Everything I've just summed up, how you live with your brothers and sisters, how your identity impacts you day to day, it is not for your benefit, it is for his glory. Keep him and his glory at the center of all that you do, of all that you say, of how you interact, of how you discipline your children, of how you go to work, of how you drive down the highway. The glory of God should be the absolute center of our motivation. I'm gonna leave you with this quote and then we'll pray. This is from Brian Chapel on this passage. Those who serve her, the church, can have no higher calling. Despite all of her weakness, there is no more powerful an organization of hope in the world than a body of believers loving one another, helping and forgiving one another, praying for the work of Christ in their midst, supporting each other in joy and in sorrow, equipping disciples, showing mercy to outsiders, and praising the God who enables it all. The cumulative effect of multiple churches so living as the world's greatest power for good. Multiple churches. We have the privilege of being involved in two of those here locally, do we not? Multiple churches looking to Christ for everything. Let's pray for the grace that he will carry us forward in that. Heavenly Father, we glorify you. Although we are two separate bodies now, we are one family of believers. And, and I'm so excited to be here with them and to, to look at the things that you have done as the head of the church, the redeeming, redemptive glory, the power and authority of you, our King, Christ. I pray for the grace that you would allow us to continue to look to you. Help us not to forget as we so easily do Help us not to forget and to begin to look down around us at our lives and the troubles and turmoils of this world, the debates that can so easily pop up, the, the divisions that can happen. I pray that we'll be unified in one thing and one thing alone, and that's you. Give us the grace to look to you as, the, as our head, King Christ. In your name I pray, amen.